This is a crawdad song. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Bing, boo. Wake up, honey, you slept too late. Crawdad man done past your gate. Welcome to Crawdads and Taters, Red State Rebels. We are writers, activists, and leftists who come from two of the reddest states in the country, Oklahoma and Idaho. When we say red, we may be referring to the indigenous, socialist, and labor histories of these states, or the right-wing fanaticism that they're known for today. As rebels, we use a leftist lens to analyze current events, political issues, and revolutionary movements that support our collective survival. So so my crawl, that's three, four, dime. Your crawl, that's not as fat as mine. I'm super excited for another episode of Crawdads and Taters. Yay! But first, I want to thank our very first VIP Rebel patron, Liz Fant. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you so much for supporting our podcast. We're an entirely self-produced and self-funded podcast. Your support enables us to spend more time creating content so that we can afford to do this more often. So please become a patron at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. All right, on to the episode. What are we talking about today, crawdads? Well, we thought we'd try something new today. Um, In all of our previous episodes, you know, we've done a lot of research and kind of scripted out our conversation ahead of time. And partly because of lack of time on our parts, um, and partly because we just wanted to try something new, we thought we'd just have an impromptu discussion on the question, what is neoliberalism? And how does it contribute to fascism? We try to address this question from a practical rather than a theoretical perspective. I mean, neoliberalism is a term that's thrown around so often on the left, but I feel like it's hard to explain it uh, to people without, you know, diving deep into economic theory. But um, we thought we'd give it a try and just kind of talk about it from a layperson's perspective in terms of how neoliberalism is seen and experienced in U.S. society today and in other global capitalist projects around the world. Yeah, and because this is an impromptu discussion, we did not really, you know, research the topic too much ahead of time, so we left a few questions unanswered in the discussion. But in our reading notes, we linked resources to answer these questions, so feel free to check those out later. All right, on with the show. So we're experimenting with a new format of podcast, which is just impromptu conversations between crowdads and taters while hiking. <laughs> <laughs> And what, what what happened? It was a we were hiking with some friends a couple days ago, and um, one of the friends asked us to define what neoliberalism was. Right? So, was that how? I it don't happened? know. Neoliberalism came up in the conversation. I'm not sure exactly how. I can't remember. Was it defining it? Well, didn't he ask for a definition? Oh, I think he asked, "What is neoliberalism?" Yeah, he was like, "What is neoliberalism anyway?" you might have brought it up yeah yeah what is neoliberalism yeah and then we both just kind of rattled off our own definitions and we thought it might be important to try to do a layperson's definition of it because it's one of those words that gets thrown around a lot on the left 
And I think a lot of people don't really have a grip on it really fully. And I mean, I don't, I, there's, I'm sure there's a million different ways to define it and a million different ways to look at it. But we were just kind of thinking like a layperson's definition might be helpful. Yeah. So I think we have to start with, you know, considering neoliberalism to be a, you know, conservative right-wing ideology. Do you think it's um, right-wing, really? I, I consider it to be right-wing. But if you look at it from, I mean, if you, I guess... From I an guess economic standpoint. From an economic standpoint, yeah. Well, what I was going to say was, I think in a way, it's that conundrum of like, do we define things right to left or top to bottom? Mm-hmm. You know, like in some ways, I feel like it's it's not really left or right per se as much as it is top versus bottom. But if you look at what kinds of... Um, economic systems enable fascism which is definitely a right-wing project then you could definitely say that neoliberalism at least feeds the right wing if it's not yeah definitely you might be able to consider it some kind of centrism i guess i just don't think of it on the left to right scale i just think of it as like a top to bottom scale there's probably a better way to look at things but i think you know the layperson looks at things as left to right 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 so I i like to look at it as being, you know, a hyper-capitalist yeah, yeah. system and anything that is pro-capitalism is, as to pro the right. is to the right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because the left starts with anti-capitalism. Yeah. Neoliberalism as a capitalist ideology. Yep. Yes. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Definitely capitalist ideology. I think people get confused by it, though, because it has the word liberal in it. And so they think, oh, it's liberal, it's left. And they don't really realize that what liberal refers to in this sense. So maybe just it's probably worth talking about that for a second. What does it refer to in this sense? <laughs> I mean, I, I think of you know it being you know liberal on like deregulation. Yeah, well, it's liberal in terms of relaxing restrictions. Yes. It's liberalizing restrictions that. Well, I think of it, so there are different ways to look at neoliberalism. You could look at it from like what's happening locally, what's happening at a national level, or what's happening at an international level. I've, I started studying neoliberalism from an international level, looking at like the disappearance of nation states under capitalism, kind of like how the rules and regulations and even the boundaries of nation states themselves are liberalized or opened, but they're opened only for capital. They're not open for people. They're not open for people to move back and forth, but they're open for capital to move back and forth. Like that's what the whole, that's what like free trade is all about. It's like opening up like borders so that goods can go back and forth more easily and profit can go back and forth or can go one way, not the other way can like go to the, you know, to the, uh, to the ruling class while, um, people are not allowed to move. They're, they're stuck, like they're stuck under national boundaries and borders, but it's the liberalizing of the movement of capital, which in some ways kind of defeats the boundaries of nation states, at least in terms of the protections that nation states used to offer for, um, 
for regulating the movement of capital. Yeah, and I think that's kind of, you know, capitalism has always been a global phenomenon. And so it's been the kind of a goal of the capitalists to eliminate, you know, borders for the transfer of capital from country to country. And it's, I guess it's a way that they get around regulations. Right. And those regulations, they could be environmental regulations. They could be labor laws. Um, I think they're often environmental and labor regulations that capitalism is trying to escape by moving to different countries uh, or moving to even poor neighborhoods within the same country. You know, you could look at it like you could look at neoliberal ideology in terms of like, why is it that, um, you know, all of our goods are manufactured in Southeast Asia? Or you could look also look at it like, why is it that all of these polluting factories are on reservations inside the United States? It's the same phenomenon. It's like exporting the waste and the like energy infrastructure, basically exporting the costs of capitalism to poor economies while extracting the profit for like the richest economies and for the richest people in transnational economies. So not even like the richest people within one place, but like the richest transnational global class of people. That almost just sounds like capitalism. Right. Well, it is. But I think, I mean, that's what capitalism, I mean, from a Marxist perspective, that's what capitalism does or wants to do, right? It wants to expand markets and reduce costs and expand profits and reduce or externalize costs. I mean, I think neoliberalism, like we said, it's a capitalist project. That's what it is. But I think the reason it's called neoliberalism is because nation states have to liberalize their rules or their restrictions in order for capital to move more freely. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the the term neoliberalism comes from. Yeah, and it it does happen on a domestic level as well. Yeah. What are some examples? Uh, I mean, just recently, Wisconsin just passed a law allowing, I think, 14 and 15-year-olds to work until 11 p.m. And so that's kind of, you know, relaxing the restrictions on child labor. Mm -hmm. It might not hold up in court, but we'll see what happens with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really like a neoliberal kind of ideology is to, you know, increase child labor so they can exploit more. Since right now with this, what they claim is a labor shortage, we, they don't have enough people who are willing to be exploited by them. So they're saying, let's look to the 14 and 15 year olds. Right. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, you could also say, you know, like drilling in the Arctic refuge or any kind of oil expansion that disregards rules and regulations. I mean, like, look at what's going on with line three right now in Minnesota. It's in direct violation of the treaty rights of, um, of the indigenous people there, of of the Ojibwe and those nations that are up there. Also, there's a lot of, like, illegal permitting going on. Like, you know, and they did this with Dapple, too. They, um, they didn't do the environmental review that they were supposed to do. They rushed that through. 
Like, I mean, all of this is just in the, in the service of profit, right? It's just like relaxing environmental regulations or ignoring them. Yeah, Trump's entire environmental policy would have been was mm-hmm. neoliberalism. Exactly. Because, you know, he gutted the Clean Water Act. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he gutted the Clean Air Act. Yep, he did that too. And pretty much, you know, he just kind of removed all the regulations that he could on environmental protection, which would then allow, you know, big factories and big oil mm-hmm. to pollute more and to take these shortcuts in order to make more profit mm-hmm. and in order to you know, not protect the environment anymore right it's like discounting the environment as a part of the cost of capital right yeah his entire energy policy and it's it's important to talk about how you know it's obviously not something that just republicans do this has been just as strong under democrats in fact my first real experience with neoliberalism was under the the clinton administration when nafta was passed that was kind of my first introduction to it. Do you want to expand on kind of what you know, what your experience was when NAFTA passed? Yeah, so I was um, working on the U.S.-Mexico border in my early to mid-20s uh, in like 1999. And that was just like five years after NAFTA was passed. NAFTA was passed in 1994. The whole design of NAFTA, as we all understood it there and then was that, um, you know, the U.S. and Canada were relaxing trade restrictions with Mexico in order to allow the profits from Mexican labor to come up into the United States and Canada, um, but without having to pay tariffs on, like, goods that were brought in from Mexico. And so what happened was... First of all, the U.S. crashed the Mexican economy by importing a bunch of really cheap corn into Mexico, which was able to happen because of NAFTA, because of like this relaxing of um, of tariffs. So they like sent all this cheap corn into Mexico, which then devalued the Mexican corn and made that market completely crash. And then that made Mexican farmers obsolete. And they couldn't compete at all, like on a global market at all. They couldn't sell their corn at all. So then they lost their jobs, essentially. They were impoverished. And so then um, a lot of southern Mexican farmers came north to um, try to make money. And the U.S. at this point had, like, the U.S. and Canada had, like, put all of these factories along the U.S.-Mexico border, which are called Miquiladoras, which were designed to um, exploit Mexican labor and then to be able to take those goods that they produced in Mexico across the border and sell them in the United States for astronomically higher prices. So again, without paying tariffs on those items. And so it forced all of these Mexican laborers who had lost their agricultural jobs up to the north of Mexico, where then they became basically slaves in these factories where they were working 12 to 16 hour days and making pennies on the hour. They were sweatshops. Um, There were all kinds of abuses. Women were being raped and murdered and being disappeared in the desert by the hundreds. The labor conditions were horrible. The environmental conditions were horrible. The factories were leaving pollutants 
in poor colonias all along the border and poor neighborhoods. And there was no one to enforce the environmental laws of Mexico. Even though Mexico had pretty decent environmental laws on the books, there was no one to enforce them. So it was just like this complete and total exploitation of labor and environmental standards through NAFTA. And that project was Al Gore's baby. You know, the vice president of Bill Clinton was Al Gore at that time, and it was his baby. NAFTA was his baby. He was pushing it. And he was pushing it in the name of liberalizing trade. You know, that's what neoliberalism is. It's a new form of liberalism. It's not the liberalism of political left versus right. It's the liberalism of opening up markets and economies for the flow of goods and for the flow of profit, but definitely not for the flow of people. Because simultaneously with that, that expanding and liberalizing of the movement of profits, the U.S. cracked down on border control and militarized the border in a way they had never done before, right around 19, late 1990s. So all of these people who were trying, all of these Mexicans who were trying to flee their desperate economic positions and circumstances were met by this ultra-militarized border. And migrants were dying in the desert in the tens of thousands. Whereas like before NAFTA, it had been like a few hundred here and a few hundred there. And like the numbers just skyrocketed after NAFTA because people were so desperate to get out. I mean, their economy had been ruined. Pretty soon, it wasn't just Mexico anymore. It was, it was Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua and all of these PPP and TPP, you know, trade plans were moving all throughout Central America and into South America and creating, you know, economic devastation and desperation for people all throughout Central and South America, which is really the, it really is the quote, immigration problem in quote, you know, I mean, that is really what, what that is in response to is, is decades of neoliberalism that have just absolutely wrecked those economies. Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, historically, I kind of look at neoliberalism as starting with like Thatcher and Reagan mm-hmm. and then kind of continuing through to today. You know, every United States president since Reagan has just continued these same neoliberal policies of you know deregulation and free trade. Yeah. How do you how do you remember Thatcher and Reagan doing it? They really just tried to open everything up to capitalism is the way I just kind of look at that. Mm hmm. And they also, on the domestic front, they also cut, you know, they cut taxes for the rich. Mm-hmm. So they, that's when we kind of get into, you know, Reaganomics, trickle down. Yep. And then on the international front, there's a lot of awful things going on as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about, you know, the death squads under Reagan, mm-hmm. um, was Nicaragua and Guatemala. Mm-hmm. And El Salvador. And El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I mean, Thatcher started a war with... Argentina mm-hmm. just to keep her position. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's actually part of neoliberalism, but I find that a very interesting yeah. point. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, tell me what you think about this, but I feel like the idea of privatization is a very neoliberal concept in a way, because when you privatize things that used to be public, it's it's a way of restricting the movement of people, but increasing 
basically profits, increasing profits while, again, kind of like liberalizing profits while restricting the movement of people. Just like if you privatize education or if you privatize healthcare, it feels like it's all part of the neoliberal yeah, model. Privatization is definitely part of the neoliberal model. Yeah. I think Reagan did a lot of privatization of healthcare and mm-hmm. the media, right? Or did the media start under Clinton? I can't remember. Well, I feel like that's probably been, have to look this yeah, up. Yeah, I would have to look that up. I mean, it's been going on forever. We might even go back to Nixon. But schools, didn't he? I mean, Reagan was mm-hmm. all about privatizing schools. Yeah, charter schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where we got a Betsy DeVos from. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, privatization is a huge, huge part of neoliberalism. And, you know, I've heard there's a fair bit of privatization in Biden's, you know, Build Back Better plans mm-hmm. involve a significant amount of privatization as far as like infrastructure goes mm-hmm. you know we're, we're not talking about nationalizing our infrastructure we're talking about selling it out to the highest bidder with this privatization kind of thing right and as far as healthcare is concerned for example you know I mean, we've never considered having a public a real public healthcare system like a medicaid medicare for all system or a single payer system medicare for all or single payer we've never had anything like that and we will not under Biden. No, and like you look at what happened with like Obamacare, it was a huge giveaway to the insurance companies rather than a nationalization of the healthcare system. And also like Medicare has been privatized. You hear about like Medicare Part B and Part C and Part D. These are all private insurance that are now profiting off of Medicare, whereas Medicare should be fully federally funded but now this individuals are having to pay for supplemental Medicare. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I, I remember when, you know, Obamacare was being negotiated way back in 2009, was it? 2008, 2009, uh, yeah. somewhere in there. 2009, because the election was 2008. Yeah. And, um, and I remember there was this big protest outside of the negotiations because the single-payer single advocates were kicked out of the room but the insurance lobbyists were allowed to be in the room. They were in the negotiations. They were sitting at the table, but the single-payer advocates were completely kicked out, which just goes to show, you know, I mean, how neoliberal Obama's administration was right from the beginning because that was his claim to fame is that he was going to pass health care. And then he totally, just right from the get-go, eliminated any possibility of just everybody having health care. Yeah, and the Democrats had a supermajority at the time, so they didn't have to negotiate with Republicans. Yep. But instead, they ended up passing what was essentially Romney care. Yep. This was the same kind of plan that Romney had in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So... I think the second part to this question about neoliberalism is how does it lead to fascism or how does it pave the way to fascism? Because I think people, again, don't really understand that either. Yeah. So like, you know, William Robinson has defined 21st century fascism as essentially the dictatorship of transnational capital. Mm Mm-hmm. And you know, earlier on, we were talking about how neoliberalism opens up borders to transnational capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so that's 
a direct link right there to what we consider, you know, 21st century fascism. It may be a little bit different than what fascism was back in like Mussolini and Hitler's day, right? which was like an ultra nationalist version of corporatism. Right. But like both versions of fascism, they both involve, you know, heavily being corporate control. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at Nazi Germany, they opened up to like Ford, Ford was manufacturing in Germany after Hitler took over. Mm-hmm. And many other companies, corporations, like essentially Hitler invited in all these corporations to start their manufacturing in Germany. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And were they using were they using Jewish labor or how is that how is that tied to the labor situation, do you know? I don't actually know the details on yeah. the field, what they were using for labor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was a totalitarian state. Mm -hmm. He was rapidly taking away, you know, civil liberties from the people. He'd uh, eliminated the trade unions Mm -hmm. so that their labor didn't have a seat at the table any longer. Right. Which made it much more favorable to these transnational corporations to move their manufacturing into Germany. Right. Well, if you look at the most powerful economic entities in the world today, they are global, global banks. They're banks and transnational corporations that are operating above the laws of countries. And that, again, because those laws have been liberalized or neoliberalized, <laughs> <laughs> then they don't have to abide by those national restrictions anymore. And transnational capital can just operate on this separate plane that's above all governments, you know, which is what we see all the time in the United States. I mean, our, our government is basically just a puppet of or working for transnational corporations yeah blackrock comes to mind mm-hmm. and you know s- several members of the biden administration have direct ties to blackrock mm-hmm. i can't remember who and how right now mm-hmm. well all the weapons manufacturers that you know that we regularly pay for you know in saudi arabia and mm-hmm. all of that that's like all above and beyond anything that U.S. citizens know anything about, nor do we get to vote on it. And it's not part of our quote unquote democracy. And yet, like, you know, the, the the lion's share of our government spending goes to military. Yeah, I think um, Lloyd Austin III was appointed by Biden to a top position and he was sitting on the board of Raytheon. Right. Right. So we have these, you know, these corporations are directly involved in the administration. They're really the controlling power in the Biden administration is the corporations and the corporate lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And when you privatize all the, all the, basically all the wealth in a society and it moves towards the top, then basically what you have is a totalitarian society because everybody at the bottom doesn't have any power. They have nothing. They don't have any rights because those have all disappeared under neoliberalism. There are no environmental protections because those have all disappeared under neoliberalism. And basically you have the tyranny of profit and the tyranny of markets that is the modern day fascism that we're describing. Yeah, I totally agree. That's, you know, dictatorship of transnational capital. Yeah. That's a big part of what neoliberalism opens the door for. Yeah. And uh, it opens the door for far right political figures as well like Trump, who, for example, are so friendly to business interests, you know, even though they pretend to be populists 
that was totally fake. We know that that was a totally fake populism. Really what Trump was, was a complete and total corporate pawn, like in every sense of the word. And when you have democratic administrations who for decades relax laws and relax restrictions and allow this conglomeration of corporate power to take place at a transnational level above and beyond the rights of citizens and environmental policies, then it's just super easy for someone like Trump or like, you know, um, any number of right-wing emerging fascist leaders around the world to just usurp that power and abuse it. Yeah, it really gives ammunition to the right Mm -hmm. because, you know, what happens is we get, you know, worse and worse labor conditions and then we get these, like, ultranationalists who are able to blame, you know, immigrants or you know, black people or mm-hmm. whatever and say, they're taking your jobs. Right. It's like, you know, look at NAFTA. They moved all the jobs to Mexico. And that suddenly meant that we lost a lot of industrial jobs in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so we get increased unemployment and people having to take jobs that are not what they wanted for exactly. less pay. And then you get someone on the right who says, well... It's because of all those yeah. Mexicans stealing yeah. your jobs. Blame the Mexicans. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and so it's it fuels racial resentment um, when, in fact, like it was Democratic presidents that liberalized, quote unquote, liberalized, you know, these restrictions so that the labor all went to Mexico and the profits all went to transnational corporations and the middleman just lost out whether that was, you know, and the industrial worker in the United States or or whether that was the farmer in Mexico who used to make a div- decent living farming corn. Yeah, and then we get this, like, you know, increased immigration. Like, people in Mexico are desperate. Yep. And so then they try to come to the United States. Which increases the racial resentment. And then again, you have fascists like Trump who use that to increase racial resentment and to boost his own power as an authoritarian figure who will quote unquote build a wall which now biden is continuing to build (laughs) ironically yeah and biden is deporting more people than trump did yeah more border arrests since the 1980s more border arrests yeah Yeah. interesting but he hasn't surpassed obama's deportation record has he maybe for a single year i don't know yet okay (laughs) Yeah, we don't know yet because Obama. Oh, Biden hasn't even been in office for a full year yet. Right. And I know he's deporting at a faster rate than Trump did. Okay. He might he might be at Obama. You know. Yeah. He might be his goal. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because Obama exceeded three million deportations. Ah. I think we're over a million in a year. Really? Already? I think so. Wow. We should look that up. We need to look that up. Yeah. It's. You know, it's incredible what's going on and people are ignoring it. Yeah. So anyway, basically neoliberalism and neoconservatism work together. They're like two wings of the same bird that are both all about, you know, privatization and war making and transnational capital, the dictatorship of capital. Yeah, they're just very capitalist ideologies defending the profit at all costs. Free trade, free market, capitalism. For being entirely off the cuff with very little preparation, I think that went really well, Crowdads. 
Yeah, especially for a topic as big as neoliberalism, I think we hit several important points. Although there's always so much more we could talk about that we barely touched on, you know, things like banking deregulations, uh, offshore tax havens, there's just so much more. And there were a few things that we weren't entirely clear about. So before we conclude this episode, we just wanted to clarify a couple of items. Yeah, I kind of wanted to expand on the fact that, you know, Biden has actually deported over 1.2 million people now. Already? Yeah, in his first year, less than a year. Oh my God. He's actually on pace to surpass Obama's record number of deportations. Wow. Um, I also looked up Ford's connection to Nazi Germany. And while I couldn't find a direct link between their factories and Jewish labor, mm -hmm. they were using forced labor. Okay. There was actually a lawsuit in 1998, but it was dismissed on grounds of this being a matter of international law and not subject to private litigation. Okay. Um, but it is pretty clear that forced labor was a major part of Nazi Germany's industrial base. And U.S. companies like Ford and GM were operating in Germany leading up to and during the war. Wow. Yeah. Did you want to add anything to what you, you had to say during the episode, Crawdads? Yeah, just a couple things. Um, some of my statistics about the U.S.-Mexico border deaths were just a little bit broad and unclear. Um, and I just wanted to say as a disclaimer, it's really hard to know the true numbers of refugee deaths mm -hmm. when trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border because there's no entity that's actually charged with a thorough accounting of these deaths. For decades, journalists and human rights organizations have stated that the number of deaths that Customs and Border Patrol are reporting are vastly underestimated. We know that whatever number they're saying, the true numbers are much, much higher. So this is kind of like the police reporting on their own crimes against unarmed civilians. Exactly. Any kind of self-policing or internal investigation is always a problem. <laughs> but the thing is, even if we look at these limited statistics of pre-NAFTA versus post-NAFTA deaths along the U.S.-Mexico border, even from CPB's own statistics, we can see that the numbers of deaths and apprehensions skyrocketed after NAFTA passed in 1994. Um, there's a group called No Mas Muertes, No More Deaths, that estimated in 2014 that 10,000 people had died since 1994 trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. And that was in 2014, they were saying 10,000. So the militarization of the border has only increased since then, along with a very documented culture of cruelty, CPB and Border Patrol agents. So we know that that number is very, very high. And the biggest point I was trying to make in the podcast is that the border deaths and border militarization exploded in 1994, starting with Operation Gatekeeper, which was a program under the Clinton administration that was passed the same year NAFTA was passed. How about that? <laughs> so NAFTA effectively destroyed the livelihoods of Mexican farmers. And then the strategic timing of this border militarization that very same year really points out the vindictiveness, really, of this policy of really closing down and militarizing the border at the very same moment that uh, NAFTA has destroyed the Mexican agricultural economy, which basically is just trapping people into a state of economic misery. So you'd say since the 1990s, the number of deaths along the border have definitely increased? Yes, definitely. And it's, you know, there have been ebbs and flows and there have been like a little occasional drops. Like if you look at a graph, 
but the overall number of deaths and apprehensions of refugees trying to come into the United States has seen an overall and steady increase since the late 1990s, with the numbers reaching their highest levels in 2020. I think we can directly link that to neoliberal policies. Absolutely. All right. So we've also added a few links in the show notes if you want to read more about this and other topics we discussed in the podcast today. But I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks so much for listening to Crawdads and Taters. If you like this kind of non-corporate independent analysis, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And please consider becoming a monthly subscriber at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. Because even though we're anti-capitalists, we still have to eat and pay bills. Even the smallest monthly donation allows us to continue. And remember, always be anti-fascist. And anti-brunchin. Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Lord, Lord, tell my God that three for die.